You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What a game Thursday night. Blazers lose 118-117 to 117 at Phoenix. It was a disappointing loss for the Portland Trailblazers, but it still was a very entertaining basketball game. Hello, I am Aaron Fentress of the Oregonian and Oregon Live. This is the Blazer Focus Podcast brought to you by Bymar and Fred Meyer. I have a lot to talk about today. We have the game itself. We have Covington missing free throws, Lillard's performance in the fourth quarter. We have Terry Stotts' decision to challenge the foul call made against Norman Powell against Devin Booker. Should he have challenged that or not? And we'll talk about the clock situation that came about from that. Um, also, what this loss means for the Blazers and their playoff seating situation. And I'll also get into sort of where I think this team is headed based on how they've played the past 11 games, a stretch that produced a 9-2 and record. So what we were treated to on Thursday night was a playoff-caliber basketball game between two good teams, one that has been elite all season in, in Phoenix and the other that's trying to turn the corner and become elite. Have they? We could discuss that. They definitely have been playing better as of late, but they put forth an effort that was certainly playoff-caliber. The Blazers and Suns went back and forth for most of the game until the Suns pulled ahead in the fourth quarter quarter and they led 101 to 92 with 732 on the clock it looked like phoenix had taken control of the game but the blazers came back with a 15-6 run to lead the score at 107 107 after robert covington drilled a three with four minutes left so in three minutes and 32 seconds they went on 15 to 6 run to tie the game damian lillard scored 24 points in the fourth quarter He made his first nine shots. The last shot he made was a layup with 34.7 seconds on the clock, and that score gave the Blazers a 117-114 lead. Few things happen next. Bridges made a couple free throws. It's 117-116. Then Lillard missed his only shot of the fourth quarter, a three-pointer with 9.6 seconds remaining. Pardon me, had his only miss of the fourth quarter, and that's where things went downhill for the Blazers. First, however, they did catch a break because Crowder got the rebound off of Lillard's miss, gave it to Booker. Booker dribbles up court, and Carmelo sort of reaches in to disrupt the ball. Booker spun but picked up his dribble and then started dribbling again, feeling that since Anthony had got a hand on the ball that he could resume his dribble, but it doesn't work that way because you're still in the act of dribbling. You can't bring the ball to your body even though Anthony may have touched it and then start dribbling again. 
basically Anthony succeeded in preventing you from dribbling. You needed to stop. So they called him for double dribble, which is a funky call for me because you hardly ever see double dribble called in the NBA. You see it in youth basketball, but it very rarely happens in the NBA. Um, Blazers have the ball, 5.6 seconds left. They call a timeout. You're up one. You're thinking, okay, this they're good, right? Hit a couple free throws, play some D, prevent a three. Robert Covington gets fouled on the inbounds pass and goes to the free throw line. Now, he had just made two free throws in a few minutes ago, and he's an 84% free throw shooter on the season. So you expect him to make both, but at the very least, he's going to make one. And usually, if you make the first one, great. If you miss the first one, you've got your range. You miss the first one, you're going to make the second one. So he proceeds to miss both. Now, this clearly was a critical moment, obviously, because... He could have put them up three or put them up two. Instead, it leaves it a one-point ball game. Crowder gets the rebound off the miss. 4.4 seconds left. He calls a timeout. After the game, I asked Lillard what he thought about Covington missing those free throws. You guys made a great comeback there in the fourth. Robert Covington was a big part of that, but he missed two clutch free throws at the end. We were pretty surprised he missed those. I mean, it happens. I I don't know what else to say. It's, It's part of the game. I've done it before. CJ's done it before. He just he just missed. And, uh, you know, it happened to be at a crucial part of the game. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's what decides the game at the end, but I, that's not why we lost the game. We missed two. They make two at the end, and uh, that ends up being a difference. But there was a lot of things we could have done better uh, down the stretch to not even be in that position. So Lillard is 100% correct. It does happen. Everyone in the NBA – at some point in their life is going to miss a clutch shot, miss clutch free throws. It's just part of the game. It was just shocking because he is such a good free throw shooter. Okay, so now Phoenix has the ball, 4.4 seconds left. They get the ball into Booker up high to the left beyond the three-point line. He drives to the right with Powell on him. And Powell does get a hand because he gets beat a little bit. So he gets a hand in on Booker's body. And then Booker gets to the right elbow, rises for a shot, and Powell reaches in again. And it was weird. Like, he had kind of ridden him a little bit to the, to the spot where Booker wanted to shoot. And it was just bizarre that he kind of then reached in again at the last second because that's where he got called for the foul. And it was really like there was not much of a chance for you to disrupt the ball. You might have just hit his arm and disrupted the shot, disrupted the shot, excuse me, and that's what drew the foul. I thought it was a bit ticky-tack. You know, I thought it was like, yeah, I mean, his hand's there, but it didn't really disrupt an awkward shot. Booker shot it, fading away, rising up, ended up falling to the ground after he missed. To me, that could have been a no call. However, you could see where an official's caught between the rock and hard place there because there is a reach in. Now, here's interesting perspectives about the call. So here's what Stott said about the call first. Because remember, he challenged it. So clearly he thought it might not have been a foul. Coach, what do you think of the foul call on Norman? Well, they reviewed it and they said it was a foul. I think it's an unusual call to make at that time of the game. I disagree with the call. Uh, it's difficult to argue uh, when they review it, but a lot of times when you review a call, you're going to see some contact to justify a call. Uh, but I didn't think it was a call that should have been made. Okay, so clearly Stotts didn't like the call. That's why he challenged it. He thought it was a little ticky-tack, um, something that he wouldn't expect to be called in that situation. And I kind of agree with him. Like, I feel like it might have been a foul, but it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, come on, really? You're, you're going to call that in that moment. You're going to bail him out, put him at the free throw line for a little bit of contact that really didn't alter the shot, in my opinion. But, you know, these things happen in, in the NBA. It's, you, you can't put it in the hands of the officials. Bottom line is... Covington makes a free throw, 
just just one worst case scenario you're tied after Booker makes two right or you make both and you're up three they try and shoot a desperation three they're not even driving to the basket so you know you can put it on the refs but at the same time you got to put it on yourself really if you're Portland now though let's hear what Lillard had to say about that call he had a little bit of a different spin on the call against Powell Jimmy what were your opinions on that foul call Norman on Booker I mean it looked like he it looked like his hand was on was on him. You know, when you slow when you uh play something in slow motion, you know, you can see the slightest contact, you don't know how much of an impact it might have had. You know, if that was me, I probably would have wanted them to call it. And you know, on the side of it that that we ended up being on, I feel like he didn't he didn't even see the contact. I felt like I felt like he didn't see the contact. He just saw him fall and, and react and he just you know, he just went off of that. But I mean it is what it is, man. It's over with now. So Lillard's opinion was that he didn't believe that the official saw much contact. He just saw a hand go in. He saw Booker go to the ground and then decided there must have been a shove there or something. So I'm going to call the foul. And there wasn't any contact made for, by Powell against Booker to cause him to go to the ground. It seems like Booker went to the ground maybe to draw the call. And because he shot an off-balance, you know, semi-fadeaway uh, jumper from the elbow. Uh, but at the end there, Lillard said that, you know, if that were me shooting the ball, I would have wanted that called. So, you know, on one hand, he feels like the official may have gotten duped. On the other hand, he feels like as a shooter, as a scorer himself, he would expect to get that call. So although I think it's ticky-tack, although clearly, clearly Stoss didn't like it, although clearly Damien may have felt like it shouldn't have been called because the official got duped, at the end of the day, as a scorer, as a shooter, he's saying, eh, I would have wanted that call. So... It is what it is. These things happen in the NBA. There are a lot of fouls that don't get called. There are a lot of ticky-tack fouls that sometimes do get called. It's an inexact science. It's always been and always will be. You just have to not put yourself in a position to allow the officials to beat you. So now, Stotts looks at the clock, and there's .9 seconds on the clock. And so he does have a timeout. Worst case scenario there, you're looking at Booker making both. You're down one, which is what happened. And you have a timeout that you use, and you get the ball uh, at the other end of the court with 0.9 seconds left. Now, we all know here in Portland that 0.9 can lead to a fantastic shot by Lillard, as he did during the 2014 NBA playoffs in Game 6 at home uh, with, the, with the dramatic shot that he hit to beat the Rockets. Uh, but, you know, as great as that was, if you gave Lillard 100 of those, I don't think he makes most. I don't think he makes more than, you know, maybe... At this point, his career 20. So you got 20% chance, maybe. But you also know that Phoenix knows <laughs> that he can hit that shot. So they're going to put two guys on Lillard and probably take him out of the equation. Anyway, Stoss in that moment called uh, for a challenge of the foul call, hoping that maybe there wasn't much contact there. It was kind of iffy to begin with and that he could get it reversed. That way, it's just a miss by Phoenix and not two free throws for Booker. The results of... The challenge, of course, went against Portland, which I pretty much felt that it would because upon reviewing the replay, you could kind of tell that there was some contact. And so the officials are not going to reverse a call because it might have been questionable. They're going to reverse a call when it's obvious they got the call wrong. And this wasn't obvious. As a matter of fact, it was obvious that there was contact. Therefore, you're not going to reverse the call. So Stotts loses his timeout. But what else is interesting here? is that the officials, in reviewing the play, they review the entire play. So they see that that the shot misses 
and the clock should have been, or the foul call and the missed shot is supposed to stop the clock. So the clock should have been stopped at 2.4 seconds. So this is where the controversy comes into play. Well, mini controversy, I say, more of a wine fest, really, because people are blaming Stotts for burning the timeout on the challenge when he could have had the timeout and taken the ball out with 2.4 seconds left, which is a decent amount of time to try and get a good shot off after Booker makes free throws, one or two. However, here's what Stott said about that situation. I think this is very important. Check this out. It wasn't difficult because there's 0.9 on the clock. I don't think if I challenge it, I don't know if they put more time on the clock. Uh, so with 0.9, if there had been 2.4, I don't know if I would have. You know, I, if it had been 2.4, I, I probably would have kept my time out, advanced the ball, and tried to get a last shot. But with 0.9 on the clock, it really wasn't that difficult. So many people have questioned whether or not Stott should have challenged that play or not. To me, it's clear that he should have. You roll the dice there. You still have, you know, in his mind, 0.9. If you get it right, you prevent the free throws. If you don't get it right, you know, you would have only had 0.9 anyway to try and get a shot off. As it turned out, he ended up with 2.4. He didn't know that going into it. That actually helped them on the final shot from McCullum anyway. And here's the funny thing about this. You know, McCullum caught a long pass near midcourt anyway, and then had a chance to dribble and actually get a better look than you might have gotten in point nine. So for all intents and purposes, it kind of worked out the way it was going to work out, (laughs) regardless of whether he challenged or not. Bottom line is Booker made the free throws. McCullum couldn't uh, hit that desperation shot. Blazers lose. So what does this mean moving forward? You are listening to the Blazer Focus Podcast. We'll be right back after a short break. So first things first, the Blazers can still get the sixth seed by just defeating Denver at home on Sunday. It's that simple. You know, anyone who thought they were going to win three in a row in these last three games at Utah, at Phoenix, back-to-backs, and then come home and beat Denver probably fooling yourself there considering that they entered this stretch 0-6 against those three teams so the fact that they got one lost a close one not so bad and I think they have a great chance to defeat Denver the other way they can get the sixth seed is if the Lakers lose one of the next two games now that does appear to be unlikely but not impossible the Lakers play at Indiana on Saturday and then at the Pelicans on Sunday Those are not going to be easy games. The Pelicans are out of the playoff picture, obviously. Maybe they want to go out on a high note. Who knows? Maybe the Pelicans say, eh, we're going to sit Zion. We don't want want anything crazy to happen. Who knows what they're going to do. But Indiana, that's that's a legitimately tough game. Indiana at home is not an easy win. And this is a Lakers team that just barely beat the Rockets the other night. Granted, no Anthony Davis, no LeBron James. But still, they almost lost. And they almost lost to the Knicks. So they could easily, not easily, but they could possibly lose the Indiana game, and then all of a sudden you go into Sunday and it's like, okay, we're already locked in the sixth. Now the Denver game doesn't matter. What does hurt is the fact that they're probably not going to have a shot in heck to get the fifth seed now. Now they had controlled their own destiny because they hold the tiebreaker against Dallas, which is currently fifth. Dallas defeated the Pelicans Wednesday night, 125 to 107. So you would hope if you were Portland going into the Phoenix game that you can win that win Denver boom you got five or you hope that you win one of those two and then Dallas loses a game uh, along the way and then you can still get fifth so Dallas right now would have to be upset at home by Toronto 
which is out of the playoff picture and doesn't have anything to play for. And then at Minnesota. At Minnesota, they, Minnesota can be tricky. We saw the Blazers lose there. We've seen other good teams lose there. Who knows what kind of effort they will put into the final game of the season. But you can't really bank on Dallas losing. You can hope, but you can't bank on it. So fifth, it's probably out of the window. But to me, given where they were in April, to get sixth is an accomplishment. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, the major downside to six. I believe, is that it puts you in a matchup with the Clippers, who are third right now. Now, this kind of, I'm going to segue from this into Denver on Sunday. The Clippers right now are third, and that to me is the toughest matchup for the Blazers in the top four because of their length and athleticism. I do think they are the best all-around team when they are on. Their combination of defense and length and their three-point shooting ability is really off the charts. Utah is great in both areas, but they don't have the same type of athleticism all the way around and size, I should say. Uh, Phoenix has the athleticism, but again, they're not an overly large team. I think with a three-guard lineup, you want to avoid bigger, longer teams, especially guys on the perimeter. But the Clippers enter Friday night with just a game lead over Denver. And the Clippers have a very easy schedule to close this thing out with. Now, Denver has the tiebreaker, so the Clippers have to finish ahead of Denver in order to hold on to the three seed. And on paper, that looks like something that is going to happen. They finished the season with uh, two pretty easy games at Houston, the worst team in the league, and then at Oklahoma City, a team that gave up, you know, eight weeks ago. And Portland beat by like 40. So they should win those games. There's no way the Clippers are going to lose to Oklahoma City on Sunday with third on the line. I just don't believe that. So there's a chance that maybe Denver, if Denver knows on Sunday that, yeah, Clippers are not about to lose to the Thunder. We're not going to get third. Maybe we're just going to dial things back because we don't want anything crazy to happen. We're cool with fourth. We'll play Dallas in the first round. No big deal. There's not much. I mean, if I'm if I'm Denver, do I want Portland, who's surging right now, or do I want Dallas? I'd probably want Dallas in the first round if I'm Denver. So I'd kind of be comfortable at four. Uh, so I kind of feel like Denver is not going to have a ton to play for on Sunday. I could be wrong. And I think Portland is going to be highly motivated <laughs> and pent up frustration two days off because they're off Friday and Saturday and go in there and handle business. Like I see them winning that game. Not They're not going to blow them out probably, but I think they win it. Win it. I think they win it in a, in a way where you're feeling comfortable about the game with five minutes to go. Like, okay, they've got this wrapped up pretty much. Uh, so I think the Blazers are going to be fine, and they're going to be the sixth seed going into the playoffs or get a few days off to sort of uh, rest up as the play-in round happens, and then they'll get ready for the Clippers. What's interesting about this team right now is that they are peaking at the right time. It's a shame for them that they didn't have a healthy Nurkic and McCollum all season. And, you know, everyone has injury issues, things like, you know, they just happen. It's what are you going to do? But to lose those guys for 60 games and to still finish sixth, to me, is pretty impressive. And everyone involved should be receiving praise, including Stotts, not criticism. But at the same time, you know, it's disappointing because had those guys been healthy, had you been better on defense because you had Nurkic and you were playing CJ instead of giving Simons a ton of minutes, you could be looking at a team that was fighting for the third seed, you know, this whole time instead of fighting just to hold on to six. Like I think CJ and say CJ only missed five and Nurkic only missed eight games. I think those guys playing in those extra games is worth five or six wins. Like at least. Like I think their combined war would be about five or six. And so 
they go from 41 to, say, 47 and 24. 47 and 24 has them a half game behind the Clippers right now for third and ahead of Denver. So from a seeding standpoint, that's unfortunate. However, seeding, I don't think, is going to matter that much in the playoffs. It's going to be an absolute, pardon the cliche, dogfight in this in the Western Conference. I mean, with the Lakers falling to seven, I don't buy the Warriors as a true threat. I don't think they have the horses besides Curry. But to me, there's seven teams there that, yeah, we can rank them who's, who's better. But like, it's going to be difficult for anyone to come through the West. And I think Portland has put themselves in a position where, although I think the Clippers are a bad matchup, and I think the Lakers, if healthy, are a bad matchup, I think they match up decently against everyone else. I think with Denver with Jamal Murray out, I think they can win that series. Uh, Dallas, you know, Dallas is okay, but I, I think Portland can win that series if they play them. The Suns, you know, DeAndre Ayton was out, so that wasn't the full-strength Sun, but Suns, but still, the way Portland's playing, I think Portland and the Suns would play an amazing series. And Utah, even. Utah didn't have Mitchell and Conley. I would probably still favor them in the series, but I think the Blazers can run with them. It might only go six or seven, uh, what have you. So I think the Blazers right now are in a position, given how they've been playing, to steal a series, maybe, and maybe threaten someone in the second round. Uh, no matter what, people are going to be disappointed because they're going to see a lot of potential that this team, they're going to see the potential come to fruition, and they've already seen part of it. They're going to see some of it in the playoffs with them playing pretty well, but it's probably going to end in the first or second round, and then you have to figure out what to do this offseason. For me, and this is looking far ahead, I think you bring back Powell, you keep Nurkic and bubble wrap all offseason, and you come out with this group next year. And in an 82-game season, this this is a 55-win team probably. And uh, maybe you have a shot to make some more noise next year if you can you know, make a couple other moves as well. So anyway, I like where this team's heading into the playoffs. I think they have a puncher's chance. So we'll see what happens in the postseason. However, close it on Sunday against Denver. Make a statement. Capture that number six seed. Feel good about that and move forward. All right. That's all I have on this edition of the Blazer Focus Podcast brought to you by Fred Meyer and by Mart. Be sure to subscribe because now that we're in postseason mode, there's going to be more gaps in between games, more times to get in podcasts. So I'll be uh, cranking up the number of podcasts per week. I'm going to get Joe Freeman on here a bit more as well. And we're going to really dive in deep to the Blazers postseason, which promises to be pretty exciting. I think I think it's going to be fun to watch. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.